Hi, I'm Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nistrook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. This is a podcast where we talk about women in film and TV. Lately, we've been talking about a lot of directors, but we will also be talking about writers, cinematographers, producers, people in front of and behind the camera. And I should also mention, I've done a very bad job of this in the past, but that this podcast is an extension of my blog, which is also called Woman in Revolt and can be found at womaninrevolt.com. So if you haven't checked that out, please check it out. Yes, you are missing out if you do not check out Woman in Revolt. Lindsay is a wonderful writer, and especially if you are a Gilmore's Girl fan, you are going to love it. Yes, we're in the middle of a never-ending Gilmore Girls rewatch at the moment, just about to start on season seven. So hopefully we will be done with this motherfucking project within the next year, or I'm going to have to take drastic measures. Yes, in the next year to ten. Yeah. So today we're here to talk about Cheryl Denier's 1996 film, The Watermelon Woman. And I thought maybe it'd be good for us to just talk about why it's a good time to watch this movie. So just starting at the very basic level, it's a movie that takes place in the summertime, almost completely during daylight hours. It's kind of a movie that's perfect for any time of day, any time of the year. It's sort of upbeat, I would say it didn't make me feel depressed or sad really in any way. It was just a fun, enjoyable movie to watch. And I think it's really something you could put on any time and find enjoyment in it. Also, we are in the middle of Pride Month, and this is a film about a lesbian woman of color and her relationships. So I think that that also made it just a good time, especially now to watch this and bring it up. And I'm like you, I really enjoyed it. I did not leave feeling, even though the film did not conveniently wrap up a lot of, and I'm using air quotations, problems, I felt like that it did somehow end on a positive note. And I felt really great. I really enjoyed it and had a very positive feeling when I got done watching it. So it's a good time at any time to watch this film. And we should also note that not only is this a film about a black lesbian filmmaker, but it's a film made by a black lesbian filmmaker. And it is the first film made by a black openly lesbian filmmaker. Which I hate that it took until 1996 for that to happen, but at least it did happen. It took a long-ass time, but when it happened, it was good, and it sort of kicked off more films of its kind, not specifically made by Black lesbians, but within the canon of queer cinema, I feel like it kick-started a new wave. So it's important for that reason, and it also is a film that I think you can and can engage with on many different levels. If you just wanted to watch this and not think too deeply about it, I don't know why you would, but let's say you, that's how you like to watch movies. It could be enjoyed that way. If you want to really dig into it, there are a lot of layers to this film. It's very textured. So it really invites you to do as much research and engagement as you want. And the more you engage with it, the richer an experience it becomes. But I do think that you can also enjoy it on a surface level. 
And I feel like that's kind of unusual for a film. There were moments in the film where I was laughing out loud. There are some really funny moments in this film. And like you said, if you just if you wanted just to have a little bit of drama, have some laughs, this is the perfect film. But if you take just a moment and really think about what is being said to you, you will be surprised at the brilliance of the film and how it conveys so much without just heaping it on top of your head. It really brings it to you in a in a fun, almost, I don't want to say lighthearted way, but lightly brings it to you, something that's very deep and profound. This is a film about queer Black experiences, but it's not depressing in that it focuses on queer Black hardships. Those things are in there sometimes, but they're not a big focus of it. I would say this feels to me overwhelmingly like a joyful film. Like there are some moments where you just see Cheryl Dunier, who plays a character named Cheryl in the film, you just see her dancing in front of the city of Philadelphia. And it's just really pure and fun and happy. And there are other moments like that in the film as well. And I would also say just for anybody who misses the 90s and going to video stores and renting tapes, you'll get something out of it just on that level, too, because the Cheryl character works in a video store and you get to see all of these different customers coming in and renting tapes. And it just made me really want to go to a Hollywood video or a blockbuster and check out tapes. Absolutely. Friday night, coming home from work, you know you are going to get to that video store early. You're going to check out like at least three or four good movies before they're gone because you are just going to hole up and watch the videos all weekend. And I can remember rushing into the video store trying to beat other people because If you went like at seven, you were dead. You weren't going to get anything. So you had to be there like before six to get anything good. I mean, and just like remember going to a video store and not knowing what the movie was, but you just saw the cover and thought, oh, that's interesting. And you decided to watch it based on that alone. I feel like with the Internet, I rarely am just watching a movie because I think it looks interesting. I'm always like, "Ooh, what did they say on Letterboxd? Let me read some reviews. I'm always researching it before I watch it, and I miss the days when I could just go into it without knowing anything, and that's kind of how I discovered films. I feel like it's hard to engage on that level now when a Google search will tell you everything you want to know. So true. Before, all we had basically was film reviewers on TV that may come up and say something if there was something in the paper, and a lot of word of mouth, what I would call water cooler talk. Have you seen this film? Oh, you have to see it. It's on video now. It just came out on video. Check this out. Even obscure films, I can just remember word of mouth being, you know, I'm going to go by and try to get that film. You just knew what was hot from that. And now, like you said, it seems a lot more methodical in the way that films are presented to people. Although, I guess on the flip side, in my small western Pennsylvania town, I wasn't going into a video store in 1996 and picking up a copy of Cheryl Dunier's The Watermelon Woman. My local video store would never in a million years have had that. So there were so many things I missed out on until I moved to New York and there were video stores there that specialized in hard to find titles like Kim's Video and I can't remember what it was called, but there used to be a video rental store on Court Street or Smith Street in Cobble Hill. 
So until I got to those places where that stuff was accessible, I would have never been able to find it in my local hometown video store. I think that's why a lot of these movies were lost for a while. So that is one good thing about social media and the streaming services that we have is that it is giving these movies that were pushed off other than maybe a Sundance review or a premiere at Sundance or something like that back in the day and then gone forever. It is giving them life again. So that is good. Yeah, just one of those many conversations that's like, the internet is shit versus the internet is amazing. I feel like they're in constant tension with each other at all times. It's true. It's true. Kind of like this film does. So kind of brings together tensions. Well, tell us, Lindsay, a little bit about this film. Just if you just had to give someone a quick synopsis of it, what would you say? Yeah, so I would say that this film is a documentary fiction hybrid Cheryl Denier actually refers to it and other films that she's made of its kind as a duniamentary, so sort of a fiction-nonfiction hybrid, about a young Black lesbian filmmaker named Cheryl, who is played by Denier, who's on the quest to tell the story of a fictionalized and forgotten Black actress named Faith Richardson, or Faye Richards is, I think, her Hollywood name. And at this moment, I should say the film doesn't ever make it obvious that this Faye Richards character is fictionalized. You find out at the end of the film, based on a card, that she is fictionalized. But within the context of the film, she is treated as a real historical character. So as Cheryl works on this project, some of her own relationships, both platonic and romantic, are tested. And this might make it seem like the film is kind of dramatic, but it's pretty low-key in the way that it tells its story, which I think is why I like it so much. You see the Cheryl character face obstacles, but they're never really the sole focus of the film. The film is... More about her quest to understand, create, reimagine, and to preserve queer history, not only for herself, but for those who came before her and those whose stories might remain lost. So I guess more than anything, I would say it's a film about Black queer erasure and reclamation. I do believe that what you said about it being Black queer erasure and reclamation is probably the heart of the film is what she does with the techniques that she uses so brilliantly. Yeah, and I think what Cheryl Denier is doing is in part what we hope to do with this podcast, not that we're focusing solely on Black queer filmmakers, but just women in history who have been forgotten or marginalized or aren't talked about enough or haven't been given their due or are just people that we think not enough of the general population may know about. And it's not like this niche podcast is going to reach hundreds of thousands or anything, but it's a small way to put some information out there so that if someone is looking for it, they can find it. And I feel like that's what Cheryl is doing with her film, not only, like I said, for herself, but for other people who also are looking for these things that they can't find as part of their own community's history. I was really intrigued just by Cheryl's own personal history of how young she was when she did this film. I think she had 
she had just gotten her MFA from Rutgers Mason Gross School of Art. When she did this film, she had done several short films before this. So for this to be her first feature film, I was truly amazed at the wonderful job that she did and just the vision that she had to bring this all together on such a limited budget. Yes, her budget was only $300,000, which is no money for a feature film in 1996. Right. Just to give you some method of comparison. So 2022, the TV show Stranger Things, I recently read that each episode cost them $35 million to make. Mm. So even adjusting for inflation, that is still a wild sum of money that Cheryl got a tiny, 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 tiny little fraction of that for her feature length film. Okay, so $300,000 in 1996 is worth $559,000 roughly today. Not a lot. Not when you're trying to make a film. No. Well, I think one thing that she did, which I see so many women filmmakers do is she surrounded herself by other brilliant, talented people, especially women, women of color, queer women of color. She brought them in. She was not threatened by anyone. She basically brought them in to work with her as a team. I see this over and over with the women that we're highlighting is there's always so many more women involved in women-directed films. And I believe that it just brings such a fresh outlook to a film that we don't have because it was and still is such a good old boys club. I felt like that basically she was able to overcome and maybe even use the lack of funds to her advantage in in coming up with more creative ways of doing things and bringing things together. So Yeah, I just, I don't know. I I sound like I'm the Cheryl Dunier one-woman fan club, but I kind of feel that way about her right now. (laughs) Yeah, she did a really good job of bringing together people from her community to tell her story. And she talked about this. We will link it in our show notes, but there's a really good interview. BFI had done a screening of the film in 2020 and then did a Q&A afterwards with Cheryl and her producer, Alexander Juhas. And they talk a lot about how the film was made and the people that were involved. It's a really interesting interview because you realize how much Cheryl really thought about wanting to have her perspective represented, even when she couldn't necessarily be the one in charge at the moment of that representation. So, for example, she talks about the sex scene, which she is in. So she's not really able to fully direct it exactly the way she wants it because she's also acting in it. So she talks about how it was really important for her that her cinematographer was also a black queer woman and could kind of be a stand in for her perspective in that scene. And she credits her with making that scene so evocative, but not explicit and it's still having her gaze even though she wasn't the one behind the camera. So I thought that that was really interesting how carefully she considered the importance of having people like her involved directly in the filmmaking process. To be such a young woman at the time, she had 
a very mature outlook on knowing people she could trust to bring forth her vision and carry this forth because she is definitely in front of the camera and I cannot imagine acting and trying to direct this and doing everything else that she was doing. And she knew when she needed to rely on other people. And speaking of the sex scene, I think it's it was brilliantly done. It was also very tender and very well acted. And I know in the interview that we watched on YouTube with BFI, they just talked about how it was just her and the actress, I cannot remember her name now. Guinevere Turner. Oh, Guinevere Turner, who who were basically locked in together with this scene with a bottle of tequila and how they choreographed it. And it was just so interesting to see from her perspective how they made something so beautiful happen in such a simple setting. And we should say the cinematographer's name is Michelle Crenshaw. So she's the one that Cheryl credits with creating the fluidity of that scene and really making it so beautiful. And it's definitely not an explicit sex scene by today's standards. It's very tasteful. You see close-ups of hands. You see close-ups of mouths on skin. You might see a little side boob. It's nothing even remotely provocative. But in order to make this film, part of the budget came from National Endowment for the Arts Grant. Right. And this asshole Michigan Republican named Peter Hoekstra tried to get this grant taken away from Cheryl, citing an inappropriate use of government funds because what she created would have offended a large portion of the general populace or some bullshit. Thankfully, that did not come to fruition, but this movie did push boundaries for the time and clearly ruffled some white male Republican feathers. So Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, even today, 30 years later, yeah, I think he actually took it to the floor of Congress. Yeah. And made a big deal about it. And they didn't take the money back from her, but they did put some restrictions for future moviegoers to make it even harder. So it's just like you give a black queer woman a little bit of a voice, just a little drop in the bucket. And you've got some racist asshole that's got to step up and slap her back down. I just I just hated that so bad when I heard it. Yeah, it's fucking gross. And then she also mentioned in that BFI interview that the film got distribution in Japan. I don't know who the Japanese distributor is, but one of the stipulations was that they had to blur out a little bit of pubic hair that I didn't even notice when I was watching this, honestly. And I've seen this film multiple times. I'd never noticed the pubic hair, (laughs) but Japan made them blur it out. I mean, why is pubic hair so bad? You and I were just talking about this. Like, there's just no pubic hair in history. Like, what is going on with this shit? We were antiquing together and we were like, why the fuck is there no pubic hair in all of this old art? Like, in Renaissance art especially, why does nobody have any pubes? Were they all waxing back then already? (laughs) 
Somebody has to have written something about this because it's mind-boggling. Yeah, God forbid we show any people. God forbid that you see a dick or anything like anything male nudity on TV. That still seems so taboo. It's ridiculous. Not that I want to see it flopping around, but I mean, come on. It's like, where are we? I know. Well, all we have to do is look at the current times and know right where we are. Very true. Very depressing. Which is sad. But anyway. Yeah, and aside, I think the only other thing really about, I guess, the background of the film that I thought was interesting that I wanted to mention, Joe had said that a lot of people from Cheryl's life were involved in this production. And one thing that you should know is Alex Uhas, her producer, or one of her producers, was in a relationship with Cheryl at the time when this film was made. They actually seemed to be together for quite some time. They had a couple of kids together. And then at this point, they have been divorced for a while. So those two work together. Some of Cheryl's other ex-girlfriends pop up in the film. I know she mentioned the woman who is with the character Diana at the fruit stand is an ex-girlfriend. Cheryl's mother is in the film playing the character Cheryl's mother. And then there are some lesbian activists who are in the film playing different characters. There is Sarah Schulman, who plays the CLIT, a.k.a. Center for Lesbian Information and Technology, (laughs) archivist. To me, the funniest scene in the movie that was so hilarious. And Camille Paglia as this narcissistic white lady film theorist. So I think if you were... In the lesbian community at the time, you would have recognized a lot of these people because they were figures within that community in the 90s, and they would have been recognizable. As a modern viewer, I wasn't like, ooh, there's Camille Paglia, and I know exactly who she is. Maybe maybe I should know, but I, I didn't. I had to Google this shit, but I think it would have been things that people who were in the know at the time would have picked up on. And I loved it because each of these people were willing to make fun of themselves. We talked about Cheryl making fun of figures in authority. And I just think that it was delightful in some of these scenes how they played maybe an overblown characterization of their personalities in life. It just made it so funny. And then to know who these people were in relation to that. These were white ladies who weren't afraid to look like clueless white ladies floundering. So one thing I want us to talk about, because we already touched a little bit about how this film, the experience of watching it feels very joyful. Considering this film was made in the mid-90s, I think that it is pretty remarkable that everyone feels relatively comfortable in their queer identity. There are no big identity struggles where a character is questioning their sexuality or there's no real overt homophobia. It's all of the queer characters seem pretty comfortable and just living their lives and still learning things about themselves. But their sexuality doesn't seem to be a big part of their struggle. And I think that's interesting for a movie in in the 90s and even movies today like Happiest Season, I think is what it's called, the movie with Kristen Stewart made by Clea Duvall. Even in that movie, made in uh, 2021 or 2020, the big crux of the plot is struggle with queer identity. So you don't get that in this film. And 
I was wondering, Joe, why you think Cheryl Denier made it that way. I tell you, that was refreshing because it gets old to see any type of film that's centered around a queer relationship being some type of dramatic thing, all centered around them being queer. And I liked this because I think that she wanted to make this timeless and relevant, and she wanted to also make it realistic. So I believe that queer people, and I am not diminishing any hardships and any prejudices that they have as being queer or people of color, but they are just living their lives. And outside of being a person of color or being identifying as queer or a different type of sexuality than what is normalized, especially in America, I think that they're just like, hey, we live our lives. We just don't sit around talking about being queer all the time. I'm concerned about making this film. I'm concerned about this horrible blind date I'm being set up on. I'm concerned about, I like this girl. Are we going to jive together? What's going to happen? She came at it at such a fresh approach of like, let's just establish, yes, I'm a woman of color and I'm queer, but I also have all these other interesting things going on in my life, and this is what I want to talk about which seems so relatively simple, but we just don't see that enough. No, and I think that's one of the benefits to having people tell their own stories when white people try to tell queer Black stories or just Black stories. They tend to focus on things that Black people themselves wouldn't focus on. Obviously, the perspective is different when white people get behind the camera and try to tell those stories, they almost sometimes try to overcompensate and include things that they think are relevant without actually properly consulting the people experiencing them and trying to understand what that perspective is actually like for that person. So I don't know, I guess I'm just saying authenticity and storytelling is important. And I think one of the reasons why this film feels so happy and comfortable is because Cheryl Dunier is at the helm. And I obviously can't speak for her, but I would guess that she felt at the time she made this pretty happy and comfortable with herself in many ways. I think that's reflected in how the storytelling is. And you talked about the gaze earlier where Cheryl, the filmmaker, is also Cheryl who is in the film. And do you feel like that becomes even more important that her gaze was guiding this film so she could tell her own story? I mean, does that somehow you think tie into it? A big part of this film is not only the character of Cheryl trying to tell the story of this marginalized and forgotten Black actress named Faye Richards, but it's also about Cheryl Dunier, the filmmaker of The Watermelon Woman, the movie that we watched, trying to preserve her own history, right? Mm -hmm. So that she doesn't end up like Faye Richards, so that she's not a person that years later after her death, some young queer Black filmmaker finds and says, holy shit, who's the Cheryl Dunier person? And then has to piece together her story. She's laying out her story through her own perspective and through her own filmmaking and storytelling, she's putting it out there for whoever 
wants to see it or needs it because in a way she's recovering one woman's story while telling her own story while also creating a story. There are so many layers to this film, but I think that's one of the coolest ones, the way she puts her personal story out there as well. It's almost as if she, like you said, she's creating a history that we know was there, but was stamped out. And she's also preserving her own history. And I think that she made it and is making it still possible for other women to come forth and tell their history. I know one thing that she's doing now, she has a company that she started in 2018 called Jingle Town Films. And I read where the goal of that was to give a platform to give diverse filmmakers and storytellers and people of color and queer people and queer people of color a platform to tell their stories the way that they want to tell them. So I believe that what you just said is at the core of her being and always has been. And I think that's her legacy, to have a legacy and to make sure that the legacy of others are preserved and not stamped out like it has been in the past. What an awesome way to use your platform and what you've done to help other people do the same thing and to prevent as many people as possible from being lost to the sands of white history, which is what tends to be preserved in this fucked up country we live in. Well, another thing in the film that I found very intriguing, and I also remember from the interview between Cheryl and Alex, they talked about how they dealt with interracial dating. And they felt like that that is not brought forth enough, even currently in in today's society. I think this interview was maybe film like a year ago, so it was a pretty current interview. And I'm just wondering your thoughts about Diana in the film and maybe how Diana was claiming her power, sometimes very incorrectly in the film. The character of Diana is interesting because she's not a wholly awful person. You understand why Cheryl would be attracted to her. She is beautiful. She is sort of playful and flirtatious, and she is actually quite aggressive, I would say, in the way she pursues Cheryl. I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but she's certainly forthcoming about her interest, especially once she gets Cheryl over to her apartment. So you understand why that would appeal to Cheryl, but then you also sort of understand why Diana would be particularly annoying to someone like Tamara, who is Cheryl's best friend in the movie and played by Valerie Walker. And we got to also talk about Cheryl's relationship with Tamara because that's, oof, that's like important and interesting and very layered. But I guess in the context of this specific question, what you really need to know is that, ooh, my God, a spider's coming down the ceiling right in front of my face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's like right by my mouth right now. I'm like, I don't know, just to let it like go or ew. Have you I'm got to just tissue? let it land before I keep talking? Yeah, just see where it's going to go and then just like blow it away. Just <laughs> Yeah. I had that happen to me driving one time. 
a spider just like came down out of nowhere, like off my visor and was in front of me. Like I had to pull over on the side of the road. <laughs> Could not just let it land on me. Yeah, it's, it's like, dude, just go somewhere else. I don't want to kill you, but like, I don't want you to fall into my mouth. Right. Okay. I think it's crawling back up to the ceiling. Okay, or just let it go. All right. I think I was saying that. So you understand why Tamara would not like Diana because she is definitely privileged. And I think you kind of understand this from the very beginning, even in just small ways of like how she pulls out her credit card, how when she kind of gets roped into this little scheme where Tamara has ordered a bunch of tapes under her name and their boss is about to catch them for doing this. And Diana sort of plays it off and just ends up paying for the tapes. Even in that moment, like her casualness to just pay for something without thinking about it. This big loft that she lives in, even though she doesn't have a job, her ability to just move to Philadelphia, not for a job or not for school, but just because she wanted a change. You just kind of see the privileged way that she moves through the world and the way that she doesn't really think about a lot of things that other people have to think about. And if you are one of those people who has to think about money and who has to think about how you come off to other people and don't have the luxury of just kind of flitting through like this, I think that could be really annoying and could come off as entitled and clueless. All of that stuff is very subtle and realistic in how it's portrayed. It's nothing like Diana being overtly racist or overtly pushy. It's just in the small differences between how she acts and her cluelessness as to how she's being perceived by these other Black women. I think that she just has had everything in life that she's ever wanted. And this came forward especially there was a dinner with Cheryl, Tamara, Diana, and Stacy, who was Tamara's love interest in the film. And it was hilarious and uncomfortable all at the same time because all Diana could do was just go on and on about my father was like, a I don't know, a diplomat or something. And they lived in all these countries and she was born in Jamaica. And you could just see the looks on everyone else's faces about, wow, she's just putting it all out there, all these great things that she's had. And, and then Cheryl starts talking about the film she's making, and Diana steps in and says, oh, and by the way, I have a friend who knows the sister of this director that directed Faye back in her movies, and I can get you an interview. And it's just one more way that it appears like she's stepping in to, even though she wants to help, and Cheryl is very receptive and says, thank you, you know, it's just another way she's inserting herself out of the blue, just bringing this up without even realizing the consequences of there are just some things that are better left unsaid or better brought up in a different setting. So I thought that that was pretty brilliantly done. And I like that they made Diana likable and unlikable all at the same time. And I felt that way about Tamara. There was parts of her I loved. She was hilarious and I loved her. And then there was parts of her that I didn't like because she did not have much tolerance for a lot of people outside of her comfort zone. So I felt like in this movie, everyone is shown with their flaws 
and with their good characteristics, just like in life. There's just some people you like, some people you don't. Everybody has good and bad things about them. And not everyone has to be a villain and not everyone has to be a saint. And I like the way that Cheryl Dunier brought all of these different personalities in together. Yeah, and I would say that even with Cheryl, the character Cheryl, you see some of her flaws as well. There's one conversation between Cheryl Cheryl and Tamara where they're sitting on a stoop drinking 40s and smoking a joint together and they're talking. And Tamara says something about Cheryl always wanting to date white women and it being because Cheryl is ashamed of her race. Whether or not this is true, we don't know. But I think what we do know is that Cheryl in some ways, feels worried that what Tamara is saying is true. I would say it could be an insecurity that Cheryl does have because she does date a lot of white women. I think even if we're just looking at Cheryl's filmography and her short films as well, her love interest is often a white woman. So I think that Cheryl Dunier, filmmaker Cheryl Dunier at the top of this project, must have some insecurities or want to explore that in some way. She's included it so purposefully that it must mean something to her and then to create conversations around it. And it is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable thing to think about. It's an uncomfortable thing to try to parse. And I think the fact that she puts it in there not only adds depth to her character, but as you said, also creates this conversation that we don't often hear that much about interracial couples and the struggles that might come about as a result of having different life experiences and being used to being in specific circles and how that could cause tension and issues and maybe even identity questions within a relationship. Absolutely. And we have to remember at this time, she was actively involved with the producer of this movie, Alexandra Uhas, who is a white woman. So once again, reality is blurred with fiction. And I'm sure that they were bringing some issues that they probably faced into this dynamic. And I also thought just flipping back over to Tamara, I thought it was very interesting to show also the problems that she had with another character in the movie, Annie, who I would say, when you say she was goth, maybe she wore like a dog collar and kind of had dark and black and pink hair and dark nails and was a little bit on the goth side. And Tamara instantly did not like her, did not give her a chance. And I thought Annie was kind of a cool character in the movie. She and her and Cheryl ended up becoming friends and she was helping Cheryl out with some of her filming on some other stuff that she was doing in the film. And I just felt like that it kind of showed another side of Tamara of a further splitting, a little bit of a, not splitting, but a fracture in the friendship between Tamara and Cheryl, because Tamara did seem a little judgmental on people, sometimes rightfully so, and maybe sometimes not so rightfully so. Annie was an interesting character. I don't know. I don't know how she would have been seen at the time. Maybe, yeah, maybe like goth or alternative. But she was cool and she wanted to get along with both Tamara and Cheryl. And obviously Tamara was immediately closed off to her. 
She hated her dyed hair and the way she dresses and her dog tag. I think Tamara maybe found it performative or something. Or maybe Tamara felt jealous in some way that this woman could get away with playing with her appearance like this. I'm not sure what was at the core of her dislike for Annie, but I think you pretty strongly felt that it was projection, right? That it wasn't anything that Annie was doing, but it was some issue that Tamara had that she was projecting onto Annie. Right. That was an interesting dynamic. And it was also interesting to see Cheryl recognize this and dislike this quality in Tamara. Absolutely. And how she in turn treated Annie a lot better and was more open-minded to her and didn't just give in to Tamara's dislike and adopt it for herself, but tried to make her own decisions based on what she thought and how she felt. Right. There were several issues where you could see this friendship between Cheryl and Tamara fracturing, them growing apart. You know, it went from them hanging out together, going to dinners together, from Tamara trying to set her up with blind dates to towards the end of the movie, any conversation they had was kind of about work. And then it just, you didn't see them together as much as the film progressed on. And then at the very Towards the end of the film, Cheryl, the character, was saying, well, I don't know what's going on with my friend Tamara. I hope I can figure it out. I don't know if it's her or if it's me, but I'm trying to figure out why we're not as close as we were. And that's what you're given. And a lot of times, that's just the way life is. People that you were friends with at one point, you grow distant And you may never come back together, and you may never exactly really know why you did at the time. So I like that the film did that. It didn't have easy pat answers, or it didn't have a big reconciliation between her and Tamara, and now everything was going to be okay. It just kind of left it like, yeah, we're just really not getting along, and I don't really know why, and I don't know if we ever will. And I liked that. Yeah, it feels realistic. I feel like everyone has had that type of friendship where differences start to become amplified between you and a friend. You don't quite know how to deal with it. And you don't quite know, is it at the point where I need to cut this off? Is it worth fighting for? How do I make that decision? We saw Cheryl going through that, but she didn't ever come to a conclusion in the length of the film. I thought that maybe the most hurtful part of the dynamic was when Tamara started to become more and more disinterested in Cheryl's film project. She was never fully supportive, but she was helping her with the filming early on. And then over the course of the film, you see her become less interested, more dismissive, less engaged. That was really what started to maybe hurt Cheryl the most, or maybe I'm just projecting in this situation. No, I think you're right. I I don't think she ever fully, I know she talked about, why are you looking for this watermelon woman, this mammy type? Why is this important? I don't want to be reminded of that crap. She minimalized it right from the beginning. And this was a project that was so near and dear to the character Cheryl's heart that it had to have been a big rift between them because, let's face it, with people in our lives, you can't fully understand or maybe be enthralled with everything that a friend is involved in, but you can sure as hell be supportive and listen and at least just give moral support and 
give your time and an ear and a little bit of feedback to them. And I believe that's all that Cheryl wanted, and Tamara couldn't do that. And once again, it just goes to show that these are complex characters. They all have their flaws. I didn't hate Tamara for any of this. I didn't feel like, oh, my God, she was just horrible. I mean, there was a lot of really funny things about her, and I could see where she would have been a fun person to hang out with and that she could have been a great friend. But I can also see that as their lives just took different paths, how they could also split up. Another important part of the film that we should talk about. So we've already mentioned Faye Richards, who is this woman called the watermelon woman who shows up in all of these old films where there's sort of a mammy character of the gone with the wind era and so this woman Faye Richards aka the watermelon woman Cheryl becomes interested in finding out more about her She initially only knows that she's called the watermelon woman that's how she was credited in these films And then through digging, she finds out that her name is Faye Richards. She talks to all of these different people as she's working on making the film. And she slowly finds out that the director of this film, that is kind of her favorite Faye Richards film called Plantation Memories, was directed by this white woman filmmaker named Martha Page. So she becomes interested in what their dynamic is, and she finds out in an interview with one of her mom's old friends who knew Faye that Martha and Faye were in a relationship. So they were in a queer interracial relationship, and this would have been in the 30s. So kind of a very taboo thing. Cheryl is really excited to find this out because she's like, oh my gosh, you know, It makes so much sense. I knew I was interested in this woman for a reason. And it turns out she's a lesbian. And how crazy is that? Like, I was totally on to something. So once she finds this out, she starts digging into their relationship, Faye and Martha's. And at one point, she gets so far as to find this woman named June, who was in a relationship with Faye for the last 20 years of her life. And June is another black woman. And so Cheryl tries to hunt her down and get an interview with her. It doesn't work out, but June writes her this letter. And in the letter, June expresses not so much disappointment, but maybe surprise that Cheryl wants to include this white lady, Martha Page, in Faye's story at all. And I think it's interesting that Cheryl does include Martha Page in her film, The Watermelon Woman. Martha Page is a big part of Faye's story, and Cheryl leaves that in, even though this other black woman is saying, wait a second, why the fuck are you including this white woman in her story? Cheryl sees that as still being important to this person's narrative, even though including this white woman is not important for the sake of this white woman alone but this white woman in relation to Faye Richards. So I think, in a way, that story dynamic tells you what Cheryl's politics are. Cheryl is more about including the good and the bad, all parts of something. She's about giving a rounded picture of something, about not cutting things out and making them more palatable 
based on what you wish things were like or the best way to make things look. So I thought that that was really interesting and revealed a lot about Cheryl Dunier, the filmmaker, and also Cheryl, the character in the film. I also found it interesting that in the film, her at the time current lover and partner, who was Alex Juhas, played Martha Page in the film. So in the interview, they were actually kind of laughing about that, that it was Alex in makeup and in these old footage shots that were put together. So I feel like Cheryl did include not only the the total history of Faye Richards and Martha Page, but I think she was bringing in her current history with Alex at that moment in a way of bringing in their life experience and even putting her current partner in that role to really kind of just flesh this thing out. And that is truly what is pretty remarkable about this is she does tell all the good and the bad and the ugly and the wonderful of each character. And she's able to weave that in so that for any character, I didn't feel hate or I liked most of them and I saw their flaws and and I was still able to take so much away from this just from the way that she presented it. I think that to diminish or to remove Martha Page or Alex Juhas from Cheryl Dunier's life would be doing a disservice to Cheryl, right? Because those people are a big part of the story. Like for Faye Richards, Martha Page is a big part of her story. For Cheryl Dunier, Alexander Juhas is a big part of her story. They have kids together. They had a relationship together. You can't just say, oh, we don't want any white people in these stories because the white people are relevant in black stories as it applies to the black experience, I think. I mean, I'm white, so <laughs> if I'm totally off here. Feel free to um, tell me, but that's that's just kind of how I think I understand that dynamic and why Cheryl feels it is important because it is part of history. Maybe it's not a part of history that you wish existed in the case of how June looks at Martha Page, but it is history as it happened. And it, it does reveal something about, in this case, Faye Richards. And think about it. If Cheryl, the filmmaker, or Cheryl, the character, had cut that out or not mentioned it, honestly, it would have been exactly what happened to Faye Richards, where her story was just not told. Like, it's almost getting rid of someone's history. And she would be guilty of that. So I feel like that was another conviction of hers, that we have to tell the full history. We can't leave anything out as Faye's history was left out. So I think that that was another big thing to provide the uncomfortable truths of everything. And I applauded her for that. And I applauded that she went against the sisterhood of the older lesbian women telling her you shouldn't do this. But she's like, she stood by her convictions and said, no, I'm, I'm going to do this and tell tell this history the way that it should be told. Yeah. And you even see in the first scene where Cheryl appears on screen, 
She's got the video camera set up on a tripod and she it's first it's a blank frame. You just see a chair and then you see Cheryl enter into the frame and clip a lavalier mic to her shirt. And when she introduces herself, she says, uh, I don't have this written down, so I'm not going to get it right. But she says something like, my name is Cheryl Dunier and I'm a filmmaker. Or I think she just says, my name is Cheryl and I'm a filmmaker. And then she says, well, not really a filmmaker, but I'm trying to be one. And you notice in this monologue where she's introducing herself and telling the audience about herself, she does these in-the-moment corrections of things that she's saying that she feels aren't quite right or aren't quite an accurate representation. And I feel like she does that with this whole film. She's trying to be objective about what is right to say or what do I want to say or what it most accurately represents how I feel or who I am in this moment. She's thinking constantly about her identity, her perception of her identity, how that's going to be preserved and really trying to get that right. And I think trying to be as honest as she is capable of being, not just in how she talks about herself, but how she talks about other things and other people as well. And I think it's uncanny the way that she ties her self to Faith. It's almost as if Cheryl and Faith, Cheryl and Diana, Faith and Martha Page, they're all tied in together. And in the way that she had to create this character, Faith Richards, she's tying everyone in to bring forth a history that she found didn't exist and was lacking when she went for this. So I feel like she pulled a lot from her own personal experiences to create this history because ultimately that's what she had was her experience and what she was experiencing at the time. And she put that in. I saw this often put that Faith was used as a placeholder And I think Cheryl even used her own life in reality and her life, her fictional life in the movie as a placeholder to give queer women of color a historical marker going forward. Her story transcends to other people's stories as well. It is specifically about her, but it also becomes about more than just her. It becomes more about universal experience and it's about how one person understands that but there are also other perspectives provided in the film which I feel give the viewer more leeway to see themselves in some part of this whether they're aligned with Tamara or Cheryl or Annie or some combination of them or Faye or Martha there are so many different perspectives brought into this that lend an empathetic or a way of understanding the dynamic for the viewer. And I think that's really smart. And I'm sure based on like what you said in interviews, Cheryl would probably say that wasn't intentional. She talks about how hard it was just to get the film made the way she wanted to get it made. But it feels like all that all that is very much part of the film's subconscious. And I tell you, I was reading the article that you sent me earlier from a BFI. It was called The Watermelon Woman at 25, and the actual title of the article, The Black Lesbian Classic That Wears Its Brilliance Lightly. Sorry, I had to do in my bifocals to read it. 
But there was a quote in there that for me really summed this movie up. And I'm just going to read it real quick. It's very short. But this really just hit me. And it said, the watermelon woman offers another way to search for our mother's garden, as author Alice Walker puts it, one in which imagination is a form of birth and repair. And I feel like that that was just so brilliantly stated because I feel like Cheryl Dunier, the filmmaker, took her imagination and her own birth and experiences and helped to repair a riff in history that tried to erase women, especially of color and queer women of color, tried to erase their history. And I feel like that this film was so important in reestablishing that and told the story in such a different way, but such a way that's very impactful and that I believe that people will be saying this exact same stuff 25 years from now, 55 years from now, that this film will still be just as important as it is today. And I think from the same article, something I thought was interesting, they talked about how Cheryl Dunier turns imposed absences or difficult access into a space of possibility. And maybe that, more more accurately than anything, I think kind of describes why this film is going to stand the test of time, why it has already stood the test of time. Because it does that in a really interesting way. It shows how if you are trying to make a documentary film and you're running into bumps in the road where you can't find the information that you need, maybe because it doesn't exist, about how you can take it upon yourself to create and to reimagine what it is that you need and to make that be an additional layer that you're adding to your storytelling. And I think it's just a different way of thinking about film as a medium and also a different way of thinking about what is documentary and what is fiction. Where is the line between them? Where do they intersect? Cheryl Dunier is a filmmaker that is doing all of that heavy thinking and really pushing the bounds of the genre and seeing new places that it can go. And of course, there are other films that do this, but for this to really be not only the first Black lesbian film, but the first Black lesbian film that is challenging the boundaries of genre like this, I think makes it really revolutionary and should be something that every person studying documentary filmmaking watches. And I like to know that Cheryl is still there. She's taught at many universities. She now has this company where she's still giving marginalized people a platform to tell their stories. So I just feel like she's still out there perpetuating the ability of people who did not have a voice at this time and honestly still do not have the voice they should have even in today's time. She's giving them the voice. So once again, I'm a huge fan of Cheryl Dunier. I love her. And man, I would love to see more films from her. I really would. Yeah, I hope she makes something new. She is now working, I think, predominantly in TV. You can Google or find her on IMDb. She's directed episodes of Dear White People, Bridgerton, 
Queen, Sugar, tons of TV shows. I can't even think of what else. But you could certainly watch her work. And yeah, I guess we can just hope that she graces us with another feature film. I did want to bring up quickly before we go, we both watched Go Fish, which is the first lesbian film made by lesbian filmmakers. And I think what's the year on that? Is it 92? I think so. So we watched that film and I don't know what I'm going to say might piss people off, but I'm just going to say it. I didn't really like it. I think to say I didn't like it isn't really that fair, but what I would say is it was rough. It was rough for me to watch. It was very rough. Yeah, just in the context of like the 2020s to look back on this and to get a lot out of it because I thought I thought that a lot of things about it were sloppy. And I think if I had seen it at the time or if I had seen it earlier, I would have had a different appreciation for it. And I understand why people have such a deep appreciation for it. But I personally just feel like I missed the window for watching when it would have had that impact on me. But The Watermelon Woman, I didn't see until I was in grad school and I loved it right away and I got so much out of it. So I don't bring this up to shit on Go Fish. I do think you should watch it. It's, it's, or last I checked, it was on Criterion. I don't know if it still is on Criterion Channel. But for me personally, I just think that The Watermelon Woman stands the test of time because of the way that it bends genre, blends documentary and fiction, imposes personal with created history. I just think that what that film is doing is going to be something that especially people studying film are going to find useful and interesting and fulfilling and worthwhile many years down the road, not just because this is the first black lesbian made film, but because this film is doing all of those things all at once in such a seamless way on such a small budget. I agree with that. Yes, Go Fish was, it was hard for me to, I don't know, get into the relationship of the characters. It was, it was kind of wooden in a way. So, and, and I agree that was an important film and I'm glad it was made. And I would say also, yes, please watch that one as well. But to compare the two films, I don't know, Watermelon Woman just took it to a whole new level on uh, believability and combining fact, fiction, real life with not real life and bringing it together just a beautifully told story that is timeless for sure. I don't know if we said this before, but Guinevere Turner, the woman who plays Diana in The Watermelon Woman, stars in Go Fish and also co-wrote that movie. And Cheryl does cite it as a big influence on her, of course, because it was the first indie lesbian film made by lesbians so definitely important and important to Cheryl in paving the way for her to make her film so I don't want to discount that in any way but I just think that this film The Watermelon Woman is a lot more sophisticated and well thought out Right, and we would love to hear from you if you've seen both films or if you go and watch both of these films, if you haven't seen them and you're now you're curious or you've seen one or the other. We'd love to get some feedback from you on that. What do you think? 
What do you think about this film? What do you think about Go Fish? What What is your comparison on them? Please let us know. And Lindsay, where can they find The Watermelon Woman if if someone who's listening to this wants to see it again or has never seen it and wants to see it? Where can they stream it? So, unfortunately, there is a restoration of this film, I think, that came out for the 20th anniversary. But I don't think it's available anywhere. I think, Joe, that what we watched was not a restoration. Mm-hmm. Would you say it looked rough to me? I don't think. It was pretty great. Okay. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I don't think there's a way to see the restoration. It used to be on the Criterion channel, but it was for a limited time. And now, to watch it, you have to... If you have an Amazon Prime account, you can sign up for a free trial of either Showtime Anytime or Fandor, and you can watch it through Amazon Prime through those services. Or if you don't have Amazon Prime, you can go directly to Fandor or Showtime Anytime, and I believe you can do a free trial for both of them. So there's not really an easy way to watch it that I found, but it is accessible. You can find it, and you can watch it for free if you are a little bit crafty in your canceling of subscriptions. (laughs) Right. And if you don't mind ads, I think you can just watch it right away on Prime with ads. But I'm so spoiled. I cannot have this broken up by ads. (laughs) I can't do it. (laughs) And hopefully, I don't understand why some streaming service has not gotten the rights to have this film permanently available. It pisses me off. It should be somewhere easily accessible for a wide audience and sucks that it isn't. Why someone hasn't picked this up and made this more available, I have no idea. But Criterion, if you're listening. (laughs) Yeah, make this a permanent part of the channel. Jesus. Come on. Well, anyway, that's that's our convo on the watermelon woman. I mean, we easily could have talked about this for hours because there's a lot we didn't get into, but there's just no way to do it in a succinct conversation without it being incredibly meandering. So hopefully this at least gave you some insight into the film if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, hopefully it made you want to hunt it down and watch it. And if you are one of my friends and you have not given this podcast, it only has four ratings, for fuck's sake. Just go ahead and tap the little star. That'll take you one second. Just do it. Just do it. Rate it. Rate the podcast. Let us know that you like it. We would appreciate it. You can always get in touch with us at sup at womaninrevolt.com. And we look forward to talking with you again about movies in two weeks' time. So we will... See you then. All right. Goodbye, everybody.